You're listening to the Keep Going Podcast, where we keep going after the heart of God because He's our only hope. I'm Nika Maples. Welcome to episode 50 of the Keep Going Podcast. When I started this podcast in 2015, I felt like 50 podcasts was way far in the future. (laughs) And as it turns out, it was. But not not because it would have taken me that long to do 50 podcasts, only because I kind of made myself take a long time because I've taken so much time off. But now... Aren't you glad I'm back on a regular schedule with a podcast? Turns out I needed a little help. In the early days, I was writing everything myself, recording it all myself, editing it all myself, uploading it all myself, doing it all myself because I wanted it to be done exactly like I wanted it. And I have felt such freedom with reaching out to ask, a podcast editor for help. So I encourage you, if you want to start a podcast, um, you know what? You might want to just save yourself some heartache and go ahead and start out with podcast editor. You might be more consistent. So it's kind of a full circle moment for me to be here on the 50th podcast and circling back to reading from my second book which at the time that I started this podcast, the reason I started the podcast was to promote my second book. So it's only fitting that on the 50th episode, I would read from my second book. My second book is entitled Hunting Hope, and this one has a subtitle, Dig Through the Darkness to Find the Light. Let me read this together because really, y'all, you can't even know the pain and anguish that went through that I went through in choosing these. Hunting hope, dig through the darkness to find the light. So I love telling backstory on titles. Um, the original title for this book was Winter. Winter. That was a drum roll. That was supposed to be a drum roll, by the way. <laughs> Winter, and I sent it, I got a book agent for my second book. I did not have a literary agent for my first book. As I told you in the last podcast, I self-published it. But for Hunting Hope, I wanted a, a chance for a wider audience. So I submitted my manuscript for Winter to many literary agents. And finally, I heard back from one. And he shopped the book Winter around. This was the deal. It was one, I wanted it to be a four-part book series. Guess what? The second one in the series was going to be called, that's right, Spring. I wanted Winter, Spring, Summer, and Fall. Four books was what I was proposing. And I wanted um, them to be the phases of the life of a Christian. So I wanted Winter specifically to be about when we lose something, the grief, the loss, the trials, the troubles, the difficulty, those winter seasons of our lives. And then I was going to have spring be about how you rebuild your life after winter, after that difficulty. 
Well, the publishing company loved the, the, I don't know if you know, but it's called an acquisitions editor. That's the role of the person at the publishing house who seeks um, a new project to work on. So they read through submissions and this, mine was chosen, but they did not like the title. And, oh, I remember my subtitle for winter. It was winter surviving a season of darkness. Well, they said nobody's going to buy that book because that sounds like really, that sounds morose. (laughs) Who would want, who would pick it up? It needs to speak of hope. Well, so then I had in a speech one time, I had accidentally used the term hope hunter. I had accidentally said, not accidentally, but it wasn't even in my notes. I said, I am a hope hunter. Hope stays hidden on the horizon and you have to hunt for it, which is something I deeply believe, but I never really said this in a, ser- I almost said sermon, in a speech before. I was giving a speech at Cook Children's Hospital to new parents of kids who have neurological disorders. The audience was teeny tiny small. There were like, I'm telling you, like 10 people in the room for this speech. And one of the parents had come up to me and said, what affected me most was your calling yourself a hope hunter, that we have to hope hunt for hope because it hides on the horizon. And so when, when the publishing house was like, ah, we don't like winter surviving a season of darkness, let's do something more hopeful. And I was like, how about hope hunter? So I sent them hope hunter. And they said, ooh, we like that. But here's the deal. If you call a book Hope Hunter, they're going to think that it's all about you. Like you're the Hope Hunter. So maybe we should reframe the, the concept that is more about them. You need a book to be about the reader, not the writer. And I was like, I hear you. So the acquisitions editor suggested... How about instead of hope hunter, we call it hunting hope because then it's a, anyone can hunt hope. They choose it. It's an action. I was like, Ooh, I love it because I'm so action oriented. So I like that hope hunter is a noun, but hunting hope, that's, that's a verb. Then I cannot tell you how long we went around and around and around on the subtitle. As it turns out, the subtitle is almost more important than the title. We went crazy on the title, subtitle. I mean, volleying ideas back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And finally, we came up with dig through the darkness to find the light. And it had to be a subtitle that referred to the darkness, but also referred to something more positive, and we came up with Dig Through the Darkness to find the light. I love it. It is a happy, a happy title for me, Hunting Hope. I, I just love it. Now, in my last podcast, I talked about how someone butchered the title 12 Clean Pages. So why don't I tell you how someone has butchered Hunting Hope before? Only once has this happened. I was being introduced for a conference, and the person who was introducing me said, and now I'd like to introduce to you the author of Hurting Hope, (laughs) Mika Maples. Guys, I need you to know I'm not hurting hope. 
I love hope. I'm leaving it alone. <laughs> okay, so I wanted to share a chapter of Hunting Hope for you. This was like such a fun book to write uh, because I wanted to incorporate moments of joy in difficulty. And so I did that by writing chapters that all have to do with what God, the position that God takes when you are hurting. So I'll read over the, uh, the table of contents for you. So chapter one is he let it happen. Chapter two, he knows how much it hurts. Chapter three, he has a plan. Chapter four, he hears you. Chapter five, he can handle it. He has gone before you. He is with you. He is changing you. He is training you. He will reward you. He will not leave you. He will not forget you. He will carry you. He will speak to you. He is enough for you. And on and on. So those are the <clears throat> chapter titles that refer to God's character and the position that he takes during a time of trial in our lives. If you want to order Hunting Hope, you can get it on Amazon. But I will tell you this. It was originally created in a small hardback form with a dust jacket. And if you want one of those, they're not printing those anymore. So you would have to get a, a used copy from somewhere. You know how usually you think, I don't want a used copy. But there's some good used copy. You might even get a used copy that I've signed. That'd be fun. So I would suggest looking for a used copy on Amazon. You might even find it at uh, Half Price Books. I have seen some of my books that have price books. But if you order a fresh new copy off of Amazon, you're going to get a second-rate copy because they're only doing print-on-demand for this book now. The publisher is printing them on... I don't like the paper. It's like a cheaper paper, and it's a paperback that's shiny. I don't like glossy covers. So all of those things, in those don't matter to you. You just want the content. Have at it. Go right ahead. But if it were me, I'd want the hardback. Here we are. Chapter four. He hears you. It begins with Psalm 34, 15 through 16. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. When I was in eighth grade, my mother managed to save enough money to buy four tickets to the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. Our family had been through crippling stress since my diagnosis with systemic lupus erythematosus two years earlier, and my mother thought we could use a day's diversion. For too long, we had been talking of kidney biopsies, immunosuppressant medications, and chronic pain. She couldn't wait for us to have a fun evening when we could focus on other things. That Sunday night, we drove into downtown Fort Worth to attend the evening performance of the circus. On the way, my mother grows giddy. Her words are magic wands, conjuring anticipation for the legendary Gunther Gable Williams and his trained tigers. This doesn't affect me at first. I'm in junior high, so I firmly decided that the greatest show on earth probably isn't all that great. 
Still, there is something about any live performance, and the nearer we come to the convention center, the more I feel caught up in the spell. I am spun in the wonder of a real circus. When we arrive, my father is surprised to find an empty parking space so quickly. My fifth grade brother and I look at each other. By then, we are both smiling. We can smell the roasted peanuts from the parking lot. We can hear the trumpet of an elephant. Then everything stops. Oh, my mother says suddenly. All of us stare at her. She cocks her head as she looks at the people passing by. What's this? Happy families pour out of the convention center by the hundreds, children clinging to cotton candy and neon bracelets, mothers dragging plastic souvenir cups and stuffed ponies, fathers carrying sleeping toddlers. The matinee must have just ended. The performers are probably going to get ready for the evening show very quickly, my mother mutters, but this doesn't sound right and we all know it. A silence settles around us like in every scene of the Godfather trilogy right before the windows blow in. Mother gropes through her purse, casting aside wadded tissues and notes from Sunday sermons until she finds the four tickets. Then she turns to us, her face a wide-eyed fury. No, 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 no! Our tickets were for the matinee, not the evening performance. We just missed the show. We missed it. It's over. We were supposed to be at the matinee. She stares at the tickets and the smiles leave our faces. A circus calliope begins playing in my head, and suddenly it feels like we are the act in the center ring. Just a bunch of clowns in a tiny car. We have missed the circus. Yet all of us know there is still hope. This is because we know my mother is an artisan at asking questions. Her persistence has an elegant poignancy. Nothing stops her from trying, not even worthless circus tickets. With a heaviness that weighs on her like cinder block shoulder pads, she leaves us behind in the car and walks straight into the convention center. The audience has cleared out, but she heads in. When she sees a hallway with a dim light, she turns that direction and finds an office with a couple of men discussing the last details of the night. She quietly knocks on the open door and they invite her to enter. She explains why our family has not seen the show. She asks if there is any way she can transfer the tickets to another performance, maybe the following day. I'm so sorry, one of the men says. We're leaving Fort Worth tonight. There isn't another show. Where is your next stop, then? If we can get there, may we see you at your next stop? She begs, hoping it is Oklahoma City or Austin, somewhere close. We're going to Wichita, ma'am. They're leaving for Kansas. It's too far to justify a day trip. Is there any way I can get a refund for these tickets? Any way? She holds out the tickets with stubs still attached. I'm sorry, ma'am, that's not possible. I truly, truly am sorry, but I cannot help you. My mother swallows hard and walks back to the car. By the time she opens the door, she is crying. She stares out the window, morose, the whole way home, and she doesn't tell us about the conversation with the circus manager. 
In fact, she does not discuss anything about that fateful evening at any time, but she carries those limp circus tickets in her wallet for a full year, grimacing every time she reaches for a dollar. This is not her strange penance. It is because she is not finished. Overwhelmed by a sense of guilt, she keeps reminding herself that details matter. Details matter. Details matter. She promises herself she will make it right. She watches for the billboards. And eventually they come. The circus returns to the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex the following year. And with shameless persistence, she picks up the phone. Tears fill her eyes while it rings. She has to ask. When someone answers, she requests a circus manager, and she holds her breath until he comes to the phone. Then she says, Good afternoon, sir. Last year, my family and I missed the circus because... Oh, of course, I remember you. He interrupts her that fast. There is a ringmaster's smile in his voice. Oh, really? She is surprised. That's that's great. Um, yes, I'm the one who came, and I, I spoke with you afterwards. Well, I thought I would just call in case there was a chance. Because, you see, I, I still have those tickets in. I'm so glad you called, the circus manager chuckles. I have an idea. Would you like to be my guest at the circus? What? Of course. Yes, we would. That's perfect. Just go to the will call window this Friday for the show that begins at 7.30, okay? He tells her. Now, that's 7.30 sharp, he repeats, laughing. On Friday, we don't arrive on time. We get there early. We pick up the tickets and just like that, our cheap 365-day-old nosebleed section far to the left, all my mother can afford seats in Fort Worth's convention center are replaced by brand new heart-pounding second-row centering seats in Dallas's reunion arena. I'm close enough to Gunther Gable Williams to kiss him. A clown hands my brother a blue balloon. It is, without question, the greatest show on earth. It is more than we deserve. It is more than we dreamed. In case you haven't figured it out by now, my mother is a hope hunter. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. The week after our circus trip, her tenacity earned her a brief write-up in the community section of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. These days, someone who just won't give up is newsworthy. Now, a determined woman is not the kind of mother you want when you are trying to be cool in junior high, but it is exactly the kind you want when you are dying. Because years later, when I was in a life-threatening situation after suffering a stroke, I knew from my bed in the intensive care unit that if this woman was willing to fight for a chance to see a circus, how much more would she fight for her daughter's life? Again and again, she asked God to spare me, and he did. By then, she had taught me that the key to getting any kind of decent answer is to ask the right person at the right time in the right way. 
When our hearts are beaten and our situations bleak, the right person to ask is always God. The right time to ask is always now. And the right way to ask is always like a hope hunter with shameless persistence. Ask for help simply. Scream it if you have to, but don't waste any breath or any time explaining why you need the help. God can see what's going on. The message presents Jesus' words from Luke 11.10 like this. Don't bargain with God. Be direct. Ask for what you need. This is not a cat and mouse hide and seek game we're in. Jesus speaks those words right after he tells a strange story to teach his disciples the art of asking in prayer. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me, the door is locked for the night and my family and I are all in bed, I can't help you. But I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. And so I tell you, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Shameless persistence. The NIV calls it shameless audacity. I don't remember a single lesson in Sunday school that taught me to pray with shameless audacity, but Christ clearly encourages it. A few chapters later, in fact, he tells another unsettling story. One day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly, saying, Give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she's wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting it off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? Both of these stories make me squirm because they illustrate something about God that I do not understand. Sometimes he answers the first time we ask. Sometimes he waits until we ask again, and again, and again. But just because he lets us keep asking does not mean he has not heard or is not acting. A couple of years ago, my family went to the circus once more, a much smaller circus this time, so that my brother's kids could see the animals. My eldest niece was only four, and she sat in my lap. While the elephants performed, topped with ladies in sequined suits that shimmered like icicles in the spotlight, she leaned back and whispered to me, What are they going to do if the elephant poops? She asked, and before I could offer my best guess, the elephant nearest us lifted his tail and did exactly that. My niece sat up straight and declared matter-of-factly, Boom! It pooped. 
We joked for days about her response and about how at one minute she was asking a question and the next it was happening. She's older now, but we still use her phrase as a remark for stunning coincidences. For instance, if I come over to play with the kids and one of us offhandedly says we're in the mood for spaghetti or soup or chicken fajitas, and then her mother walks in the room to say she's making exactly what we were mentioning, we will get so tickled. Boom, it pooped! We look at each other and say in unison. Or if I'm babysitting and we're playing a game inside, I'll suggest that we go outside and draw with sidewalk chalk instead. Boom, it pooped! I was just thinking we should do that, my niece will say and laugh. Wouldn't it be fabulous if we were just asking the Lord about our unemployment situation and then boom, it pooped! The phone rings with a sure job lead. More often, we have to wait a while, toiling in prayer. Wise theologians have written many books insisting that God does not have to be pressed into acting on our behalf. Every time I read the Bible, I'm more and more convinced that this is true. God does not need to be coerced into loving us and taking care of us any more than you have to be coerced into loving and caring for your own child. These stories of the hesitant friend and the reluctant judge are not about coercion. They intimate God's desire for us to come to him, and often. He seeks to be in lifelong conversation with us. Emergency prayers and all-in-one blasts in God's directions are just announcements, but conversations are ongoing. We are instructed to pray without ceasing. At times, our hard heads learn things the hard way. Christ is not one of those friends you catch up with every few months. Our communication with him should be like breathing. You don't breathe only on Christmas and Easter. You don't breathe only on Sunday. Or you don't breathe only before you go to bed. You breathe without ceasing. If your brain has room for just one memorized verse from the Bible that will help you day to day, I say go ahead and make it James 1.6. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. If you memorize this one, then maybe you will remember that God is generous and he wants us to ask him for what we need. Asking God for help is not our idea. He's the one who invited our questions, and that may be the most comforting coat we have to cover ourselves with when we enter winter. If we are helpless, then we might as well ask for help. What else can we do? It is important to note that sometimes his answer will be no, even after we have waited and asked and waited and asked. As I told you, my persistently praying mother asked God to spare my life, and his answer was yes. But she also asked him to spare her father's life, her mother's life, and her brother's life, yet they all died before she was 30 years old. Our great God is a mystery. He hears you, though. Our mighty and mysterious God may save us swiftly when we ask for help, and if his answer doesn't look the way we expect, may we have faith to worship him anyway. The answer is not as critical as the asking, so ask. God will do something right away, but sometimes the first thing he does is to give us the remarkable peace we need to wait a little longer. God never does nothing. When we cry out to him, 
So, if you're wondering whether God acts on your behalf the moment you ask him to, well, I think you know what my niece and I would say. I hope you've been encouraged to pray without ceasing. He hears you. We'll talk soon. Until then, keep going. My guess is 2020 wasn't what you expected. But here's the thing. Our ability to make and meet goals has nothing to do with our circumstances and everything to do with our mindset. I know the best way to wash your hands of 2020, and so let me ask you a question. Be honest. Have you had the same two or three things on your New Year's resolution list for the past few years and there still hasn't been a change? Then it isn't 2020's fault, is it? I know I can help you begin next year with a fresh outlook. And the way to do that is to plan for it now. Tickets will soon be available for the Keep Going Workshop, a spirit-led goal-setting workshop where I can show you the process I use to make and meet amazing goals year after year. This time, we're offering Workshop in a Box Home Kits so that you can experience the Keep Going Workshop in a small group of your friends in your own home. Maybe you can even rent an Airbnb and make a really fun memory as you make and share goals together. Go to nikamaples.com and click on events to find out how you can reserve your limited spot. Trust me, you do not want to miss this. Wisdom in the sea.